have a seat and enjoy this ride. Because whether it's one of our incredible guests or just us adding to our knowledge base, through all that we touch and all that we see, we know you'll take home something that lies in between. I'm Drew, along with my co-host Jennifer, and this is the Pull Up A Pew Podcast. Right, welcome everybody. This is Andrew. I've got my co-host Jennifer Hello. on and our esteemed guest Anthony Peak. Hi guys. Forward to this for I can't tell you how long and and how excited we are to have Anthony on. So, uh how are you doing Anthony? I'm doing extremely well. It's the wonders of modern technology that we can be talking like this across the vast Atlantic. It's quite amazing. Absolutely. And you've been very busy, a very busy beaver. I certainly have been. Absolutely. Yeah. But this is an opportunity for an hour of relaxation and discussion and ideas and everything else, which helps me because it helps me get my ideas together in my own mind as well. That's good. Very good. I know it's uh, you're working. It's your 11th book coming out, correct? Yeah, it is. Yes, it is. And it's deadlined. I have to deliver it by uh, the middle of June. Um, uh, because I've had to delay it twice because of, um, business, uh, business commitments. Yeah. Typical. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's good, sure. coming together really well. I'm really delighted as to the, the how it's going to go, but it's with all my writing, writing, what tends to happen is I write a book and then I write it again because I'll have the first iteration and then I'll completely right. change it and I'll move it round. But with this one, what I've got is I've got about 15 different chapters and the challenge is actually linking them all in a kind of a logical structure. Got but it. It, it would come to me because my daemon always makes it happen every time. Uh, it just amazes me that I start a book and I think, my God, where, where am I going with this? What's going to happen with this? And then six months later, I sit down and I write the final words and I think, my God, where did all that come from? I love that your daemon will just help you. It's, it'll yeah. help you put it all together. In, in, in the it has, it has yeah. been doing so for the last, the last decade and a half. <laughs> and other things that it, that has happened are just are just so uncanny as to be bizarre. But on top of that, very much vindications of my overall hypothesis called cheating the ferryman. Mm-hmm. Um, it does actually support it. If we have the opportunity uh, during this podcast, I'll explain some of the the background to why I believe that I have lived this life before and I've been through this before. Oh man, yeah, absolutely, over and over again. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, also the concept of, of time, which I love to hear you talk about. And then hopefully we can get, you know, some snippets of the new book and the direction that you're going at uh, there would be great for the listeners to hear, okay. especially new listeners. Um, we can bring in as many, as many new, new people, new Anthony Peak fans that we can. Hopefully That's gonna so. cool. Absolutely. All right, Anthony, let's let you loose. Okay. Okay. Well, I suppose the first thing I want to be discussing is exactly who I am and what shakes my tree and the reason why I write. Because for many of the listeners who'll be listening to this, they'll be going, Anthony who? Never heard of him. Don't know what he's about. Don't know what he he does. Or even indeed, where his areas of interest lie. Well, um, I'm originally from um, a place near Liverpool in the northwest of England. Um, uh, I did my schooling there. And I left there in 1973 to go away to university. But I have been interested in 
strange phenomena and indeed altered states of consciousness ever since I was very, very young. And I think the basis of this was that in 1966, um, I was I was fairly ill with uh, double pneumonia. And while I was ill with double pneumonia, I remember having some very, very powerful hallucinations. This is the first time I've mentioned this on a, on a, on a podcast, by the way. So this is, this is new to everybody. But during that time, some of the things I saw in external space were very real. I remember seeing what seemed like dark objects moving around the bedroom and uh, entities moving around. And I thought to myself, exactly what is going on here? So when I recovered from that, I started to, to start to read quite deeply about esoteric subjects. And at that time, around about 1968, I think it was, in the UK anywhere, there was a part work called Man, Myth and Magic. And Mammoth Magic was really wonderful because it was like um, it was a part where it came out every week and it was a magazine, but it, it turned into an encyclopedia. But it was an encyclopedia of, of, the, of, of, the, of mysticism. But it wasn't a kind of popularist one. It was actually highly academic. So it had, you know, a deep analysis of, of anthropology, of comparative anthropology, of different belief systems from around the world, how they integrated with other belief systems. But it also had areas on such things as ghosts and exactly what do we mean when we have go- we have ghostly encounters. And it also occasionally touched upon cryptozoology and various other areas of odd experiences that people had had during the years. This stimulated me that when I had the opportunity to go to university, and in those days, to go to university from somebody from, from my background anyway, which was a very standard working class background, was, was somewhat unusual, particularly because... I had, in the UK, at 11 years of age, you have to take an 11 plus. And I'd actually failed that because I've always been a kind of an oblique thinker and I think differently to what a lot of people think. So therefore, my my mind, where my mind works and the way my logic works and everything else wasn't really attuned to the kind of things they were looking for. So I the highly intelligent people. Yeah. yeah. So I ended up in what's called a secondary modern school, which in those days, in the mid 1960s, in a working class community, you were effectively written off for life, you know, particularly because the school wasn't expecting me. And I ended up in the C stream, which is the third tier down in terms of what we consider to be your intelligence. So I had to fight my way out. Now, there was me, uh, an 11 year old, I was actually reading philosophy. I was, I was, you know, kids were interested in dinosaurs. I wasn't just interested in dinosaurs. I was interested in the different species of dinosaurs. I knew the difference between an Ornithisca and a Saurisca dinosaur because it's to do with the way the hip structure works. This was completely bizarre to my teachers. You know, they, they wanted people who talked about Diplodocus and Tyrannosaurus rex. And I was coming up with obscure dinosaurs and pointing out on occasions that that's not a dinosaur, it's a lizard. Or that was an amphibian and you're calling it a dinosaur. They couldn't just couldn't get me. But eventually, uh, around about 14, 14 years of age, one or two teachers saw in me, and I managed to get to the A stream, and they saw in me a very oblique thinker. And they started to nurture me and, and grow me. Um, and I then was managed to, to do what I think was my 15 plus, which transfers you, if you pass it, to the local grammar school, which is a completely different educational system. And I managed to pass that. And I ended up at the local grammar school, but I had to catch up because I'd missed three or four years of ingrained education. So I'd missed a lot of the grounding of physics and chemistry and mathematics, 
but I was an instinctively good at languages. I was instinctively good at, at grammar and at English language, English literature, um, geography, history, the, the, the subjects that you can read up on on your own. I was excellent at, but my problem was that iterative subjects that you have to um, have to you have to be taught how to understand how chemistry works and how physics works and how maths works. I was way behind in terms of that, but I'm a frustrated scientist. But I had a fairly meteoric career at the grammar school because it was the right kind of environment for a, somebody like me, and because I was extremely sporting, they loved it because you know I was a champion athlete. I represented the county in the 100 metres and 200 metres, and they loved all that. And I was also a very good footballer and everything else, So, and tennis player, you know, most sports I could do. So they loved that. And I then I was then top of the class, I think, quite regularly, whereas the, the secondary modern school, I was always around 10th or 11th in class, whereas the grammar school, I flew. And I very quickly found myself in the position that within – what, four years from leaving a secondary modern school, I was I was on road to going to university. Um, and quick question: This all started from a fever when you were right. a child, correct? Yeah, correct. And the feelings you had uh, around that—that's that's interesting. It reminds Not me. Not only of- that. Not only that, but it's something I've touched upon my books, but I've again never discussed in in other interviews. Is I believe that my particular and people who know me know that this is um, quite a strange capacity. I don't forget things. If I read something, I remember it, and I remember it forever. And I can bring up information and facts and figures, and I I draw them up from somewhere. And I believe why this is, is to do with my birth and the circumstances of my birth. Because um, my mother was seriously ill with toxemia when she was pregnant with me. And indeed, five weeks before I was due to be born, the actual date that I was due to be born, um, my father was called in to say that we're going to lose your wife and your son. Um, they're, they're, they're both so seriously ill. And he was given the option. And I think my mother was given the option of, even though it was illegal at the time, to just carefully abort me because or- they were probably were poisoning each other, you know. But that they, because my mother was quite religious, she was Roman Catholic, and she said, no, I'm, there's no way I'm ever allowing this to happen. So she bore, bore with it, but she then took a turn for the worse, and they had to, they had to get me out quickly. So uh, five weeks before my birth, a proper birth, they cut me out, an emergency caesarean section. Mm-hmm. And when they pulled me out, they broke my arm. Um, as well. So there I was, this tiny baby. I think I was something like three, three pound, 10 ounces or something, which in those days was, was alarmingly small. Yeah. Um, now, the question I then had was then I was in an incubator for about eight weeks. So I had no human contact. I had no physical contact with any other human being for that period of time. Normally, a baby is put straight in the arms of its mother and they hug it and you know you have tactile feedback. I had none of that. On top of that, my research now tells me that something very curious happens around about the the second or third week before a baby is born when they run full term. And what Mm -hmm. happens is there's a massive die-off of cells in the brain. There's a huge neurological set die-off, somewhere in the region of 60% of brain cells die off and are replaced with new ones, new new ones, new ones, and neurons. I didn't have that didn't happen for me. 
Now, on top of this, and this gets even stranger, is one of the um, things that is, has long been argued is that when the baby is in the birth canal, again, this is all new stuff. I've never mentioned this in any other interview. In the birth canal, the baby supposedly gets from the lining of the womb and from the lining of the mother's uterus and the vaginal canal, they get a massive input of endogenous dimethyltryptamine. The baby is given kind of dimethyltryptamine as it comes into its life. Now, when the baby is then born, the brain of the child normally lacks myelination within the neurons. The neurons, the, 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 the neurons of the brain, the, the cells within the brain need to have a lining. They're like like a, they have electrical currents in them. And like an electrical wire, you have to have it insulated from the environment because what happens is electrons leak out and the, 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 the electricity just dissipates into the environment. This is what happens with a child. A young child up until about the age of eight or nine, the myelination isn't complete within the brain. So their brain is, is functioning in a very different way to an adult. But on top of that, there's another issue, and it's to do with what's called the corpus callosum. This is the the body that holds together the two hemispheres of the brain. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, the corpus callosum itself isn't fully developed until a child is six or seven years of age. But I came into the world in, in a quite different way, both with the kind of the isolation I had, plus the, the not having the die-off of the neurons. And I believe that wired my brain in a slightly different way, because if you if you – look into, which I did in one of my books, in my book, Opening the Doors of Perception, if you look into autism and you look into Asperger's syndrome, right. you will find a lot of these children are born prematurely. But normally they 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 lack an ability to for empathy and all the issues that someone that has autism has. Now, I believe I'm autistic and probably have Asperger's syndrome, but I'm also a very highly functioning social individual. Yes. The people who know me know that I'm incredibly good at reading people's moods, reading people's feelings and everything else as well. I'm incredibly I'm prematurely and I have been diagnosed on the spectrum of, of having Asperger's. So I've been, I've been doing a lot of research into that. It's interesting. Yeah. So you and me both then. So, and I believe this, what this does is it gives you a very different the way your brain functions, the way in which your brain can throw together information from the most bizarre locations. So I can pull, you know, sometimes I will pull ideas together. And because I have been an incredibly eclectic thinker, because when I chose to go to university, the coming story, chose to go to university. But I, because I was in the position that it looked like I was going to get fairly good A-level results, and I did get exceptionally good A-level results, I virtually had the choice of universities to go to. Unfortunately, I couldn't go to Oxford or Cambridge because I hadn't got the initial grounding in Latin and Greek mm -hmm. and languages that I would have had had I been at the grammar school for the amount of time. So I, I was slightly restricted in that, but I was able to choose which university I wanted to go to. And I chose to go to Warwick, Warwick University in the Midlands of the UK, purely and simply because Warwick did a very interesting degree where you did a dual honours degree. Effectively, you did two degrees both honours degrees, one in sociology and one in history. The reason being, my reasoning being, that the sociology would give me a grounding in understanding 
how society functions, how people function within societies, because my interest in then in things like witchcraft, my interest in um, unusual religious beliefs. I was particularly interested in schismatic Christian sects, such Mm -hmm. as the Mormons, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses and various other sects like that, plus Eastern religions and how Eastern religions saw the world. Now, Warwick gave me the opportunity of following a course in the sociology of religion, which was perfect, the sociology of language. So how language models the way we understand the world and the way in which our use of words, our use of grammar, the way our use of grammar actually decides upon how we even perceive time, for instance. The power of words. Oh, totally. You know, without language, and of course, there's been a lot of work to do with this, that schizophrenia is effectively one of the things we have created because we have created language. It seems to be, it causes a, a, a disassociation between what the brain instinctively thinks and the way language then structures what we think in a cultural way. This intrigued me. Then in terms of the history, it allowed me to understand the historical perspective of how societies develop um, and how people react. Now, as well as that, I, was, I have the opportunity to, to pursue my other interests, which is art history. So I did a series of courses on, on art, so medieval art, Renaissance art, uh, 19th century art, Impressionism, uh, through to the Surrealists. So I have a very good grounding in a lot of supporting areas from the areas I, I'm interested in. But when I was at university, I also, myself and a good friend of mine, who's now back in the UK, an American guy called Bob Steen, myself and Bob and a few others, we used to travel around the Warwickshire countryside trying to find haunted pubs and haunted locations. And indeed, we found an authentic cold spot in a well-known haunted pub in Warwickshire. Um, we also visited places like Borley Rectory and various other places. Um, so it was an intriguing time. But when I actually then uh, went to finish my university career, I was going to do postgraduate and I wanted to do uh, a PhD in the art of a guy called Piero della Francesca, who was a Renaissance artist, who was a really interesting guy because he was one of the guys that first used perspective. But of course, in Renaissance art as well, there was an awful lot of esoteric beliefs behind the paintings, the symbolism. There was a lot of Masonic symbolism. There was a lot of... Things in there, yeah. I'm sorry, say again, Drew. I'm sorry, a lot of hidden meanings in there right. that the artists were uh, including. Oh, totally. You know, everything in, in a Renaissance paint. You read a Renaissance painting from the symbolism. I mean, there's a, 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 a nativity by a guy called Hugo van der Goes, who was um, a, a Flemish artist, and the symbolism in there from the flowers to the, the building that the characters are in. It all messages, and people in medieval times and in late medieval times and Renaissance times could read the painting because it gave so many messages, whereas we just see a picture of an activity. That's not the case. And fortunately, I um, recently uh, spent uh, six or seven months working at the National Gallery in London, working with a lot of the, the, the renovators of the paintings and the art historians. So I was in a wonderful position of actually doing what I love, you know, which is understanding the environment. But um, when I graduated, well, when I I left university, they they weren't willing to give me a grant to do a PhD in art history, but they said, but you can do postgraduate at the London School of Economics in some form of business qualification, do a postgraduate course in 
international labor law or whatever you want to do, but we'll give you a grant for that. And that's what I chose to do in the end. And on top of that, I, I liked the idea of, of, of doing postgraduate at one of the world's top universities. You know, the LSE is up there in the top five in the world for reputation. So for me, it was to go from Warwick, which regularly is about number five or six in the UK in terms of academic achievement. The LSE is, is just below Oxford and Cambridge. And in fact, for politicians and sociologists and social scientists, it's the number one university probably in the world. In the world. Um, so it was great to go there. And it was a wonderful environment to be there. But I never lost my interest in esoterica. So I then had the business career. But all the time I was continually reading. But another thing that had always fascinated me was UFOs and the UFO experience. And I think probably the area that I read most about in my late teens and 20s was probably ufology. Um, I know most of the major cases. Um, you know, I have fairly extensive knowledge, probably as extensive as anybody that's written books on UFOs. But I've never really written about those as such. But then the period time traveled and I went forward and all the time I was reading books, and I was wondering what for. It's very strange. I, I, am a, 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 I read like you can't believe. I know people say they read, but I read seriously. Devour books. You know, I devour books. I make notes on them and I remember them. And they all go in and they stay. They stay in my mind. In fact, I can, and, and people find this astonishing that I can do this. Sometimes if I'm trying to find a reference, I can visualize the page in the book and I can read down the page in the book and actually find in my mind's eye the reference I want. And other times I will just know something's right, even though I don't even know when I read it, right. which is even weirder. And I will go back and I will discover I was right. You have that it, photographic memory. You almost, know? It's called eidetic memory. It's almost like right. that. Yeah. I mean, for instance, yeah. I've never been beaten in Trivial Pursuit ever by anybody, ever. Nobody has ever beaten me at Trivial Pursuit. Um, it will happen one day, but it's never, ever happened. Um, and I'm known for people are always wanting me to be in their quiz teams because of the way my brain works. Um, you know, and people say you should go on these well, TV programs and yeah, make lots Jeopardy of money. But that's, not what, I'm, that's yeah. what, not what I'm about. That's not what I want to do. And right, right. You know, it's just not I'm me. I'm going to laugh. I say we should get you on. Uh, what's ours here, Jen? The big one. Um, Alex Trebek. <laughs> you can make a fortune on there. Well, because the thing is, I I know that's not you, though. That's not. Well, the thing is, as well, because I'm quite a bizarre character because I'm also heavily into sport. I love my sport and I love my soccer. And on top of that, I I have a a huge record collection of music. And I love my music, both rock music, classical music. You know, I'm into everything, literally. It's really strange. Drives my wife crazy. My record collection right now. (laughs) It's amazing. That's wonderful. I'm I'm loving it at the moment. I'm loving Tidal at the moment. Tidal is the most wonderful piece of software. You know, I'm drilling back into bands that I missed years ago and picking up albums I missed. But going back to this, the the, the reason I was going to make this point is that as I was going through my life, I always wanted to write. It was this kind of burning desire. And there was something, a part of me that kept saying, you've got to do it, you've got to do it, you've got to do it. And I'd argue that was my daemon, my higher self, my guide my spirit guide as it were and Mm. as i was getting older i started to read i was getting deeper and deeper into very interesting areas of science like i know that people will find this quite confusing 
but I was a great fan of Richard Dawkins. And I read all of Richard Dawkins' books. Now, this is where it gets odd. And this is the first one of the weird coincidences that take place. Way back in about 19, oh, probably 1981, 82, I'm, I'm a total Grecophile. I love Greece. I'll go to Greece once, twice a year. And I have been doing so for, 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 for more than 40 years. Well, yeah, 40 odd years every, every year, at least once, probably twice, sometimes three times. And I've been collecting Greek islands. I've been to scores of Greek islands and actually got married in Greece as well, in a tiny little Greek island, only the third non-Greek couple to get married there. And many years ago, and again, to say probably in the early 1980s, I was on a place called Petty Beach, which is on a tiny Greek island called Simi, which is, which is near Turkey. And I was on the beach and I was reading Richard Dawkins' book, The Blind Watchmaker. Now, one thing I never do because I love books is I never I never dog ear book pages. It's something I don't do. I always have bookmarks because I hate books being damaged. If anybody wants to irritate me, I'll loan you a book. And if you break the spine of it or you dog ear it, I'll kill you. Okay. <laughs> so, there, there I was. I read this book and I was reading it and then I finished it, come back to the UK Forget about it, but I don't forget about it. But, you know, it goes into my reference library and it sits with all the other Richard Dawkins books. I'm starting research on my first book. At that time, I've been, as you explained, I've been given time. I had a year out to write a book, but I didn't know what I was going to write about. So what I allowed myself to do was to just free associate and try and think what I'm going to write about. You know, literally, that's how it was. I had no idea what the book was going to be about. My wife agreed for me to take a year out. And literally, on the first day, I'm sitting in front of a blank uh, computer screen thinking, what the hell am I going to write about? I had no idea. But my daemon started to give me clues of where to go. And this is a classic example of it. I started to, I started to be interested in um, how the human body has developed and how the human brain has developed and particularly DNA. And I was intrigued about something called mitochondrial DNA, which is DNA that's in the mitochondria. And mitochondria are one of the organelles inside each cell. Each cell we have in our body, there are little tiny structures called organelles. And one of the organelles is called mitochondria. Now, unlike general DNA, which is in all cells of the body, mitochondria has its own DNA, its own type of DNA. And the DNA is carried always through the female line. So the mitochondrial DNA will be from your mother and your mother's mother. So you're able to trace back what's called right back to what was called mitochondrial Eve, the original woman that, that we all came from um, many thousands of years ago. And it is only thousands of years ago, which is quite weird. It's not millions. It's about 250,000 years ago, if that. But I, I thought to myself, you know, I need to know more about mitochondrial DNA. And I'm sitting there and I think, who would have written about this? And this was the days, it was pre-Wikipedia. It, it was, although the, 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 um, the internet was there, it wasn't as powerful a tool to find information as it is now. So I go off to my library and I think Richard Dawkins. So I start looking through the Richard Dawkins books and I think, yeah, the blind watchmaker is probably the one. I didn't know why I thought that, but I did. Blind watchmaker is the one he'll write about it. I take the blind, I take the blind watchmaker book out. And to my absolute horror, I noticed that one page had been dog-eared. And I remember the page that I dog-eared from the beat. I remember when I read that book and then I thought, 
Jesus, did I dog ear that page when I was in help, when I was in see me? And I thought, you did, didn't you? Something in my head went, you did. No, no, I think it went, I did. Even weirder. But I knew. And I opened the page with absolute certitude. And there it was, the reference to mitochondrial DNA. Now, on top wow. of that, I then checked all his other books. That was the only page in all his books that he references mitochondrial DNA. And I'm, I'm sitting there going, geez, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. And then I thought to myself, this means that there is a part of you that knows you're going to write this book and it's left you a message. And then I thought, well, if there's a part of me that knows I'm going to write the book in the future, how does it know I'm going to write a book in the future? And indeed, what exactly is it? How does it know my future? And this was the first seed that started the whole book and the concept which I call cheating the ferryman. Because what I then thought was, could there be a set of circumstances whereby we maybe live our lives again? And I started and I went off on a tangent and I started reading up about near-death experiences. For some reason, again, my daemon took me off on a tangent to reading near-death experiences. Started reading near-death experiences. I knew about them anyway from my readings over the years, but not in depth. And I found something quite curious, that there is something called the Grayson scale. And the Grayson scale is the tools that people use in order, doctors and medical people and physicians use to describe when somebody had a near-death experience. So, and they're called the Grayson scale, and they come from something, the work of a company called Raymond Moody. Now, the Grayson scale is based upon the work of a guy called um, Grayson, surprisingly enough. Um, and he's professor of a psychiatry at the University of Virginia, Bruce Grayson. He's also the president of the International Association of Near-Death Studies. But there's a reason why I'm explaining this in a second. So, so I start reading up on this, and I discover that there are certain typologies You know, people, when they have near-death experiences, have the sensation of floating outside of their body. They have a sensation of time slowing down. They have a sensation of meeting another entity. There is something else that suddenly manifests in their mind, something called a being of light. They then feel that they're going through a tunnel towards a bright light. But the one that struck me more than anything was something called a panoramic life review. This is the the concept of my life flash before my eyes. So I'm thinking, right, okay. And I checked up the statistics and I found it was fairly common. And then I'm thinking to myself, so in a near-death experience, your life flashes before your eyes. How does that work? How How can your whole life flash before your eyes unless it's recorded in some way? In other words, your whole life memories must be encoded somewhere, either within your brain or somewhere where your brain can access the information. And it's your whole life because people, some people have recorded, they see every single incident of their life. Not only that, but um, associates of mine who have subsequently told me when they've had near-death experiences and panoramic life reviews, they've also felt what other people felt about things they did to them. You know, there's empathy Mm. as if, you right. can pick up on other people's thoughts and feelings during these circumstances. So then I thought, well, what's this telling me? If my life is recorded and it's it plays out 
in the final seconds of my life in a near-death experience. What happens in a real-death experience? Because particularly, as I said before, one of the Grayson scales is time slowing down. So I thought, well, if time slows down for people who are dying, in other words, for the person dying, time slows down. But for the observer watching the person die, a minute is a minute is a minute. But for the person dying, a minute can expand out to be subjectively hours and hours and hours or weeks or months or years or a lifetime. And then I thought to myself, if that is the case, in a near-death experience, the panoramic life review may actually be a full, literal, minute-by-minute life review. And if you do then live your whole life again in a minute-by-minute review of your life, there will be a memory, a sublimated memory of the fact you've lived that life before. And does that explain things like deja vu? The idea that you go somewhere and you see it and you know you've been there before. The idea you meet somebody and they resonate with you. And, and then I thought, so is this, could this explain how this voice in my head, this guiding spirit of, inside me, in fact, is the me that remembers the fact that I lived the life before? And this is when the next coincidence happened, because I go on holiday to another place in Greece called Stupa, which is on in the Peloponnese. And while I'm there, I read a book called The Jesus Mysteries by uh, Timothy Freak and uh, Peter Gandhi. And in this book, it's about the Gnostics, the early Christian Gnostics, and how the Gnostics and, and standard Christianity came apart, and the way the Gnostic belief systems had a very different worldview of the nature of reality. They believe that there is a reality behind this reality. But they also argue, the Gnostics, that inside each of us is a shard, a little bit of the reality behind the reality. And that little shard is called the daemon. And the everyday person that lives in this life is called the Edelon. Mm-hmm. And a little bulb went on in my head and I thought, bloody hell, that's it. That's it. The voice in my head, the guiding spirit that I have is the daemon, the Gnostic daemon. And the I am a regular Edelon, which is living the life normally. Now, so I then get carried away. I then get started interested in the chemical constituents of what takes place when somebody dies. What happens in the brain? And I discovered something quite strange. There's something called the glutamate flood. Glutamate is a neurotransmitter in the brain, and it floods the brain at times of stress and pressure and at death. Now, when people have glutamate floods under normal circumstances, what happens is time slows down for them. If you've ever been involved in a car crash or somebody gives you bad news or whatever, time just kind of, that's the glutamate. Glutamate is also responsible for migraine, classical migraine, temporal lobe epilepsy, and schizophrenia. It, it, is, it, is, it is a known constituent. They measure this particular neurotransmitter in the brains. So here we have temporal lobe epilepsy. Then I get a phone call from a, a recruitment consultancy, and it's a lady, and she phones me up, and she said, Tony, we are looking for a business consultant to do a business consultancy for us. Would you be interested in doing it? I said, no, I can't because I'm writing a book. And as most people do, she said, what about? And I said, I don't really know. 
I seem to be going all over the place, but at the moment I'm very interested in the neurological constructs of something called temporal lobe epilepsy. She goes really quiet and she says, we need to meet up. So I arranged to meet her and I met her in a place called the Copthorne Hotel, just literally around the corner from where I'm now living. I used to live in a place called Horsham. I'm now living in a place called Crawley. And Copthorne is one of the, the, the villages around Gatwick Airport, London's second airport, which is only three miles down the road, four miles down the road. Meet her up. And she turns around and she said, I think you're too qualified for the job, but I needed to speak to you because I've recently been diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. And she said, some of the things you were talking about were sending shivers up and down my spine. And I said, why? And she said, because of what happened to me when I first realized I had TLE. And I said, well, can you tell me? And she said, yeah, of course. She was, get this, she was at work. She was at work and she was visiting a client's place. And she was in the cafeteria of the clients. The client is sitting opposite her and they're discussing a contract that they can do. As her client sits back, starts pouring herself a cup of tea out of a teapot. My friend or the consultant says there was a snap over her left ear. She heard a distinct snap over her ear. And her friend stopped moving. She looked at her friend and her friend was frozen. And she thought, what's she doing? Why she stopped? And then she could hear this low humming sound. And she's looking at her friend and then she looks around the canteen and everybody's frozen. Everybody is not moving. And she's thinking, oh, for God's sake, what is happening to me? And then she looks at her friend again. And after about five minutes or so of her time, she notices her friend is moving incredibly slowly. And she realizes that the humming sound she's hearing is people talking. Her metabolic rate had gone so high that literally her time perception had just expanded beyond belief. Now, she, she said to me, I don't know how long I was in that state. She said it could have been weeks. It could have been months. It could have been years. It could have been a lifetime. But she said, after what seemed like forever, there's another snap over my ear. And my friend continues pouring the tea, sits back and said, are you OK? What she'd had is called a, a petty malabsence. In other words, from the point of view of her friend, the little woman, she'd literally just stirred at her for about half a second and come to. But she'd been away for weeks, days, months, years. OK, she's so upset and worried about this. She goes to see a neurologist and she's diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. Now, for some reason, I do not know why I turn around and I said to her, do you get deja vu sensations? And she looked at me with absolute shock and she said, Absolutely. She said, it's part of my pre-seizure aura. I know I'm going to have a seizure because I get the most profound deja vu sensations. Yeah. And I said, if you get these deja vu sensations, how far in the future do you know what's going to happen? And she said, 10 seconds, probably. She said, I can repeat in my mind what people are going to say to me. This was amazing because suddenly I was then be able to draw in because of course that works with the hypothesis because if somebody who's temporal lobe epileptic experiences temporal lobe epilepsy if their neurological constructs are slightly different it means they can attune into the world of the daemon slightly more and of course we know that if you're living in a recording of your life you can fast forward you know you can know what's going to happen because the, the, it's already there it's already happened it's just you're stuck in linear time moving through it but there is another time that runs parallel 
you know, ortho- orthogonal time that runs runs on a direct right angle from everyday time. Time B. Time B, yes, of course. Time B, and as you probably know from my writings, it's to do with the writings of somebody called um, John William Dunn, who in 1929 wrote a book called An Experiment with Time, 27, 29, I think it was 29. And again, we have suddenly all this evidence supporting my hypothesis. And then the final piece of amazing thing is that um, I then get, I then contact the International Association of Near-Death Studies and join the International Association of Near-Death Studies. And who do I get in contact with? But Professor Bruce Grayson of the Grayson Scale. And he then helps me get my first academic paper published. And my hypothesis, Cheating the Ferryman, first appeared in a peer-reviewed academic paper published by the International Association of Near-Death Studies in 2004. Spring, I was 2005. I was 2005. From the back of that, I then got my first book deal. When the, the, when the book was finished and the, the Cheating the Ferryman idea was there, I then fa- found a publisher, sent the paper to them, and what happened was, and again, this is how life works, the owner, the chief executive of the particular publisher was traveling to America on business. And he just picked up one of the manuscripts on his desk at random to read on the plane. It was my manuscript. But by the time he'd landed in New York, he was on the phone to the London office to say, my God, we've got to have this book. It's unbelievable. Now, then, then I approach Bruce Grayson, and he agrees to write the foreword to that book. So Professor Bruce Grayson wrote the foreword to the book. Now, unfortunately, it was going to be called Cheating the Ferryman, and I'll explain why I wanted to call it Cheating the Ferryman if you're interested. But my publisher watered it down. The original version that I'd written was far more technically precise. It, was, it had all the science. I had, I had three chapters on quantum physics alone. Just explain the quantum physics of time, the quantum physics of of of, of um, subatomic particles, how they blink in and out of reality, how they can be in two places at the same time. It was all supporting material, but the publisher watered it down because they said, "No, it's too technical. It won't sell." I know what you're trying to do, but it will not sell. Therefore, and we think cheating the ferryman is too obscure a title, and we think you should call it just "Is there life after death?" Now, my frustration with that was the book doesn't deal with that. I never, ever discuss what happens after you die. I don't discuss is there life after death. The whole hypothesis is what happens the split second before you die. In other words, everything I talk about takes place when the brain is still functioning. So I don't need to come up with any kind of theory of disembodied spirits because this all happens while you're dying. And it ended up and confuses people because people now buy the book and say he doesn't talk about that. But I think my I feel like I know, but I, I do want to know just when you're ready to, to explain why you did call it cheating the ferryman. Okay. Again, this was one of the curious events um, of, of, of how things just come together for me. Um, I've never been particularly knowledgeable about ancient Greek myths. I know a little bit about them, like most, most lay people do, but I don't know in depth. But I started, as I was writing the book, I started to, to dig into. The, the beliefs of the pre-Socratics and the Eleusian mysteries that take, used to take place just outside Athens for many, many years. 
And one of the ancient Greek belief systems, and this is where it gets really, really interesting, because I believe these guys already knew about this. I don't think there's anything in my writing that isn't already known. It's just it's known in esoteric traditions. It's hidden. It's a cult. And I'm the first writer joining the dots. And in fact, I've been approached by occult groups. Two or three of them approached me and said, shit, you've done it, mate. <laughs> you've done it. You've got it. You've got what we've been talking about for years. The ancient, the pre-Socratics used to believe that when somebody died, you'd put a tiny coin called an obolus underneath the tongue of the corpse. And you'd probably put two coins or you'd put two coins on their eyes. This, the reason would be is the two coins on the eyes would stop them being able to look back and come back and be a ghost back in the real world. And the, the coin under the tongue was for a particular purpose, because when the person died, they would find themselves on the edge of a huge river. Technically, people would call it the sticks. It's not the sticks. It's actually called the Acheron. But we'll get technical about this. But the sticks is one of the rivers. And it's the Acheron. And they found themselves here. And out of the mist comes a boat. And the boatman is coming across. And he's called Charon. Now, Charon then will take the obolos as a tip and payment to take the trade across the river Styx or the Acheron to go to Hades. Okay, so this is where I talk about cheating the ferryman, because I argue you don't cross the Acheron. You cheat the ferryman of his obolus. He is cheated. But there's more to this, because if you can look greater at the ancient Greek myths, what used to happen was when the shade, when the dead person got to the other side of the of the Acheron, they were given the opportunity of either going forward and living in the Elysian fields and living in, in Hades or wherever it was, or they could go back and live their lives again, live their life again, their life, not reincarnated as somebody else, but live right. their life again in something that's known as the eternal returns or the eternal return. Okay. Now, in order to do this, and this is where it gets quite strange, the ancient Greeks believed that you had to drink of something called the waters of the Lethe, L-E-T-H-H-E. The Lethe was another tributary of the Styx, like the Acheron, and it's called the River of Forgetting. So you drink the waters of the Lethe, and all your past life memories would be wiped clean, and then you'd go back across the Acheron and be reborn again from the start of your life with no memories of who you were or anything. Now, this is identical to something that millions of people do every day in 21st century world. It's a third person computer game. Uh, uh -huh. Okay, you start playing a third person computer game, what happens? You load up the computer game, bang, you have your shade, you have your on screen being that your you avatar. are going to help get through the game. Lara Croft, for example. The on-screen computer game is born at that moment. It has no memories or anything of the past. It starts the game. As it starts the game, it runs down a corridor, goes into a room. There's a big monster. Lara Croft gets killed. That's one life, dead. That Edelon on the screen has died. However, the daemon, which is the game player, can then go back to the start, reconstitute another Edelon, 
identical Eidolon in the same world, in the same environment, living the same life. But this time, the daemon knows that if it goes, if the Eidolon goes into that room, it gets killed. So what it does is it warns in any way it can to stop the Eidolon, the on-screen sprite, going into that room. And it allows it to survive a little bit longer till again it's killed and it goes back to the start of the game. In the end, after multiple times, the Eidolon lives the perfect life. It gets through the game. And I think this is what life is. Yeah. We live this tight life multiple times. And every time we change it slightly, every time we have we do something different, we avoid dying. I always say to my people when I do my talks, and I say, isn't it amazing that you, people you know around you die, but you never do? You witness other people's death. You never witness your own because we never witness our own deaths. And again, before people are going, oh, this is unscientific nonsense, I strongly suggest you check out something called quantum suicide. They're, they're, they're on YouTube. You'll find lots of references to this. It was first suggested um, around about 15 years ago by a Swedish-American quantum physicist called Professor Max Tegmark, who I think is at Princeton. And Tegmark uses our present knowledge of quantum physics to prove that the observer within his own universe never, ever dies. And it's to do with an application of something called Schrodinger's cat. Yeah. And he's right. He's right. He's absolutely spot on. Because we are creating around us, we are collapsing the wave function of our reality. We are collapsing the wave function of the game that each one of us exists within. And our games overlap with other people. Because all the time we are all creating our own, what I call the phanerons. You're creating your phanerons now and they're interfacing with mine. And the wave functions of us are overlapping at the moment. And the next time we meet, they'll overlap again because we've become entangled. And this is life. Life is a computer game. But on top of that, we know the physics. Bias likes to make an excuse for this entanglement, you know, uh, issue. Uh, they go around that uh, to make excuses of, of, of how, you know, two electrons can, can uh, interface with each other from great distances, right? They, oh, they totally. match up. They, they have no idea how this, this completely flies against all knowledge of, of how we believe right. space to be, space and time. Space is something that there are objects in space and they are at distances from each other. But one of the biggest philosophical questions and, fi and questions being asked by physics, including Ernest Mack, the guy that came up with the max, max speed and everything else, was that imagine a scenario that space is empty and there's just one object. Yeah. Where's the space? Where does space go? Is space just made up of the objects that are in space or does it have objective existence outside of us? And the question is, we really don't know. So is space simply a creation of consciousness in some way? Now, David Bohm, the famous Anglo-American philosopher, scientist, one of the world's top quantum physicists at his time, he argued that what this non-locality and this entangled particles really tells us is that at a lower level of reality, they're the same particle. We see them as two particles, but it's actually one. And in fact, everything is one because everything is holographic. Yep. You know, that we exist within a holographic structure. 
that we believe is three-dimensional when it's not, it's two-dimensional. Not only that, but the latest research is actually doing the science of how this seemingly three-dimensional illusion is created. Again, so many questions, uh, you know, the whole holographic universe principle itself. Oh, totally. You know, the, the thing is that the people, there's people like one man, the corner, who's doing work on this. The guy that really is the big guy in this recently died is a guy called Jacob Beckenstein. Also over there in Canada, in, in North America, there's a guy called Craig Hogan who works at the Perimeter Institute in Canada in Ontario, and they're doing work at the moment trying to find the pixelation of the program. You know, this is mind-blowing stuff. They're actually trying to find the pixelation. They know what size the pixelation is. The pixelation are what's called Planck length squares, the smallest size you can have. And what is intriguing about these Planck length squares is that if you decided that the edge of the universe, imagine the universe expanding out like a balloon, the, out, the inside of the balloon is the edge of the universe as it expands outwards. If that was peppered with Planck scale squares, yeah. and each Planck scale square had one digit of information, one binary digit of information, one bit of information, and it's, it's sending that information inwards, the relationship between the numbers of data and the amount of data it is needed to explain the universe as we know it is the same. It's the same. It's, yeah. it's, it's like one of these kind of numbers that scientists just think is impossible. How can that be the case? But it is. It's telling us something. It's like, why does the universe seem to work on something called the Planck number? What, what is it? Right. Max Planck, when he came up with the Planck, the Planck number, he made it up. He used it as a tool to explain the observations that were taking place. But subsequently, this number occurs everywhere. And it's because human beings think about something and it comes into existence. The act right. of thinking and the act of observation creates what's out there. And this is one of the areas of, that I'm going to be going to in my new book. It, huh. It's interesting that, you know, we call it a, a Sonder Productions. It, and that's what Pull Up a Pew podcast falls under. And then you have the definition of Sonder which we can go into another time, but you're, it would be viewing, let's say, a, a light in a, in a far off distance in an apartment. And you know that somebody's living there and their life is just as complex as yours is, but they're just a background, like uh, uh, an extra in, in your movie, your life that you'll never know. But what makes me think is, is that truly a life existing there, or is it kind of in a gray scale of existence? If that makes sense, I don't know if it does. Of 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 existing and not existing, because we have not been able to quote the Schrodinger cat is open up that box and to be able to see and to create mm. that being um, that's far off and a far off distance within a building. Let's say that you can't physically see them. You know, are they existing inside that box or are they truly uh, real? Mm. Um, I don't know if that makes sense or not. No, it does. It's, it's, it's the philosophical question of other minds, isn't it? You know, the right. idea of the only thing I can know with absolute certitude 
is that I'm something perceiving something. Everything else is mere conjecture. I don't, I never, I never actually directly interface with external reality. The chair I'm sitting on at the moment, my, my backside is not in contact with the chair because of electrostatic yeah. repulsion and also the power exclusion principle. So I never contact anything. I never touch anything. My eyes see things, but then the things that my eyes are seeing, the electromagnetic waves and the light that's hitting my retina is not the same light, or indeed it's not even light itself that's inside my brain in my visual cortex. So everything I'm seeing is being created by a, a, a recreation of electronic electric signals in right. my nerve in my, my neurons inside the darkness of of our skull inside yeah, of and our, the dark, our as you quite right in the darkest place possible yeah, and not only awesome. that but the external visual system that you're looking now if you look out of your eyes now you're seeing a wraparound fully textured fully colored reality and yet that is created by a po- an inverted postage stamp sized image on your retina not only that but you have a blind spot at the back of each eye and you don't see it this is because the brain fills in the information it needs from the black from the blind spot it, it needs a, to to fill that in so you've got no way of really knowing that what you're seeing externally is really out there so that then starts to ask the billion-dollar questions about the nature of hallucinations, the nature yeah. of dimethyltryptamine, and when you see dimethyltryptamine imagery, when you see dimethyltryptamine elves and things like that, why are they no more real than the reality that's presented to you by your brain? And the answer is, you've got no way of knowing. No way of knowing. I play a game with Jennifer about how you know we, we cannot prove the past exists. There is no possible way for us to do that, that right now in this moment, whatever happened five seconds ago, we, we cannot prove happened. All we can prove is what's happening right now. Yeah. And we've been on the phone and I've told her, Jennifer, remember this conversation and then we'll get back on the phone yes. two weeks later oh, and then I'll ask her what's happened. We cannot prove that any of that occurred except what's happening right now. I mean, we, we have, a, we have a, a, a memory, and I don't know exactly what that is, what we're creating or we're filling in the, the, the blanks, so to speak, like you're saying, mm-hmm. of what's occurred. But um, Jennifer, right? We, we've talked about that and how quickly it occurs. It like, you know, we were just literally on the phone, even though it was two weeks ago, it was really just now, you know, immediately. And the issue is here that not only that, you can extrapolate that from the future into the future because yeah, the future yeah. is anticipatory. The future doesn't actually exist until we perceive it. And then it rapidly becomes the past. And the only thing that actually happens is the nexus point between the future that is yet to occur and therefore doesn't exist and the past, which has ceased to exist and only exists in a memory. And we already know from people's memories that memories can be manipulated. They can be changed. They, there's many things. So when you start getting deeper and deeper into these issues of perception, the whole thing seems to fall apart. It's just that 99% of the population never think about these things. They're not issues to them. But subconsciously, they're thinking, and so you've got that, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, Everybody's consciousness literally creating what's happened. Um, The collective unconscious Mm, is is what I'm getting at. And that, uh, 
again, with, with there being no past, no r- real Roman history, that we're all just really creating that for this one moment um, that, you know, none of that actually happened, um, which is something that I, I constantly drives me nuts, uh, you know, thinking about. Well, the, that, the, the area I'm moving... That actually occurred. Well, the area I'm moving into at the moment is the concept of the egregore. And an egregore is a, 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 a shared belief system that people have that becomes external to themselves. And again, it's something that anybody who's in occult law will know about the concept of the egregore. It's been something that has been part of, of magical tradition for, for many, many centuries. And it's the idea of somehow making the, the reality out there more plastic by the act of, of thoughts and observations. And I'm reminded here, you know, of people who have created things called tulpas, which are kind of thought forms that actually become manifest in three-dimensional reality. Now, there is so much evidence that these things take place, and all it needs is a question of belief and a question of attention. You know, we, we all agree that the world is the way it is because we all agree that's the way it is. Now, could it be that other people see the world in a completely different way? And indeed, there are a lot of philosophers that are arguing now that you cannot, you cannot, you cannot even say that somebody from a different cultural background or a different right. belief system sees the world in the way you do. Their world may be totally different. And again, it could be down to language. It could be the way, and it's something called the staple wolf hypothesis that argues this. You know, so intriguing. This is a little different, but what are your feelings on Boltzmann brains? And that were just kind of floating out there, uh, you know, existing as a uh, basically just a, a, a mind um, with no physical structure whatsoever, and that we're creating this, you know, reality uh, that's all around us. Um, but have you have you heard of that? That Boltzmann brains? I have. Uh, I know what I know the principle of it. So I presume they're playing on Boltzmann, Boltzmann as in the guy that actually came up with the contract yeah. concept of entropy, um, right? Who sadly committed suicide. So that's not a good start, is it, for that one? But um, <laughs> no. shouldn't laugh. The the argument is, and I wrote a book with Irvin Laszlo about this. About we confuse sometimes and assume that consciousness is simply an epiphenomenon of brain behaviors. And we feel because we can measure what happens in somebody's brain when they're, say, playing tennis or they're thinking certain things, that therefore the thinking of those things is actually embodied in the brain. But it just as easily analogously could be that the brain is reacting to something that's external to itself and that there is a reality behind this reality which we all exist within that we are, we are beings that are, as Teilhard de Chardin said, you know, that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. That what this is, is a simulation that we are inside, but the real us, our daemon, I would argue, is outside of that. And the daemon doesn't need a brain to exist because consciousness is prime. That everything that is, is created out of consciousness Physical reality is literally literally an epiphenomenon of consciousness. And that in order for us to function within this simulation, we have to have certain belief systems. And we have to, going back to the point I was making before, we need to have an understanding of space and distance between things. 
We have yes. to understand linear time. Time has to flow. And of course, time itself, you know, is just a, an extrapolation from uh, thermodynamics and, and entropy. Right. You, know, you know, things go from order to disorder. But then again, there's the thought, well, if that is the case, how is it that evolution seems to be going the other way? You know, the other way. I have a whole theory on that, that we're actually devolving, that we were one consciousness, one singularity at the beginning, and that every time, you know, somebody's born, I shouldn't say somebody's born, but another consciousness is brought with into the universe that we're cutting that in half and that we keep doing that. We're cutting the the original singularity in half every time so every time we do that it's kind of like a facsimile of ourselves that you know like each each fax is a is a a, a worse um uh picture of the original if that makes sense mm. so that we're not really moving forward in evolution that we're going backwards and that we're what we're doing is we're using technology in order to make up for what we've lost thousands of years ago, that we had so much knowledge, the sages that we that you've been talking about, and all of the different people, that if if history is real, <laughs> okay, and they did exist, that they had a, a different way of of uh, thinking. You know, their minds were just as uh, intelligent as we are, but I'm arguing that they were probably even more intelligent to the point that we can't even conceive what they were thinking at that time of how their minds were used because each time again that somebody's born we're cutting into that that um one singularity of consciousness that occurred in the beginning of time so again technology is yeah that we're, we're making up for that we think that we're evolving with the like ai you know and and all of these things that we're creating that it's actually we're, we're moving into an, an area that we don't understand we're playing with you know as being gods and that this might end up uh as something tragic mm. that there's that funnel effect that we've got to get through that if we don't make it through this this tight funnel and get to the other side without you know, fundamentally destroying ourselves, um, that we might have to start over again, you yeah. know, existence, uh, of, uh, the human, um, reality and life and, and, uh, might cease to exist. And, and, uh, maybe there's just a, a few of us left and we start over again. Well, funnily enough, this is, um, I'm involved with, um, a group of people, um, and we meet, we, we started to meet every every three or four weeks at um, uh, the Houses of Parliament in London. Um, and we're under the guidance of a couple of people. And this is exactly what we're trying to do, is to bring awareness of the fact that we need to start thinking differently in terms of how we relate to the environment and how we relate to each other, because we seem to be on a collision course in so many different ways. <laughs> And we we don't necessarily know how we're going to go forward, but there's some very, very interesting people involved in that, you know, some really top-notch, world-famous people. And mm -hmm. it's it's a movement away from this me first. It's it's more towards a more holistic worldview. Um, but sadly, I think the vast majority of humanity 
don't see it that way. You know, they, they're, they're into material materialism. They're into me first. Mm-hmm. There's there's no spirituality anymore. Um, this generation, this new generation, that's all that it's about. It's a, it's a me too. It's me too. And it's sad. Think about the risks that we took when, when we developed the first atomic weapon and what uh, Von Braun had said, you know, that uh, the, you know, the famous quote of what we unleashed, but they were doing the mathematical um, statistics of whether or not the entire, uh, um, what am I trying to say? The entire, uh, um, <laughs> what am I trying to say? The, uh, uh, not the space around us, our, um, our atmosphere. God, sorry. Oh, our atmosphere, atmosphere would catch on fire, mm-hmm. right? And we did immediately. And, they said there was a general that said well you know if we can get this down to just i think it was three in uh 30 million or something like that the chances of it happening within three of 30 million that we would go ahead with the uh with the experiment but still that's three and you start to think of the statistics of just getting hit by lightning Mm -hmm. (laughs) is is greater than this occurring and we went ahead with the experiment anyways you know and and we really don't think about how incredibly dangerous that was that brings us now again to what's happening with cern portals and you know messing with with artificial intelligence which is being used right now a lot of people don't realize how far along we are with artificial intelligence um and also quantum you know computing and and where that's going to lead us um, that, yeah, there's a lot of, again, existential risks that we're taking that, you know, the average person doesn't, doesn't realize, uh, that there's think tanks and, and people that are making these decisions for us. Yeah. Right. I agree. That, that we know nothing about. It's a very scary. It is. It is. I agree. Right. Okay. Well, we're, we're one hour and 10 minutes in, which is, brilliant it's been a uh, fascinating i think i think we should probably do this as soon as i'm finished writing to probably do this on a, a maybe a monthly basis i don't know um in oh, yeah. following sure. up on these ongoing discussions because this has gone so well um i hope that um i didn't talk too much um oh no no okay. perfect you did your thing exactly the way you're supposed to it's uh just what we can know, do if we can in that way that's this is how you you uh, interact. I've been thinking so much about all those things. We'll talk about another time, but just about how your demon has doesn't exist within this time, but like the dog earing of the book and the direction that it's taken you in your life. That you that you know as an avatar itself, um, living w- within the time frame that you have to live in that we're stuck in, but your, your Damon isn't, but he's been leading you down. He, she, whatever you want to say has been leading us down, leading, I'm sorry, you down this path Mm. of uh, some incredible things. And we need to get this information out to more and more people. Um, and especially people Um, that are, you know, within your field so that they can match up what they um, are doing. 
And uh, for our listeners, possibly please don't like us on Facebook, what you've follow been doing. us on Twitter. And we really want to hear from you, uh, uh, questions, you know, together comments, to ideas, some, some you new would like. Um, to have uh, uh, advances on our podcast you know, in, in different fields. Um, so, anyways, we we'll create our own and um, Patreon yeah. uh, uh, to add some funds. The more okay. funds uh, that we have, the more we can offer your listening audience. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Sir. We'll have that linked up soon. Yeah, it's not there yet, but it'll be there soon. Patreon is the most important one uh, that we need, you know, to to keep this going. And but most people that listen to podcasts are, are familiar with that, so they'll they'll understand, you know, what what it is to do, so that we can continue uh, continue. To do. Anthony, thank you so much. Thank you, you, Andrew and Jen, for a a wonderful just over an hour. It's been quite fascinating. We will be doing this regularly soon. Um, But uh, until till next time, thanks again, and uh, I'll be speaking to you guys fairly soon. Anyway, Um, best best wishes. Okay, bye. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye.